Hey, what's up, guys? This is Rob Pearsall, and you're listening to the Mets Legends Cast. I will be rocking today's episode solo, and I want you guys to strap in because we're going to take a trip down memory lane. Um, The reason that I wanted to do this topic for the episode is because we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of this. So on December 6th, 2011, the Mets made a trio of moves um, in the span of what I feel like, looking back, was probably only like an hour, maybe two hours. Um, And being younger, obviously, I always got excited for trades and free agent signings. This was kind of a bleak era in Mets history because you kind of knew that they were going to be rebuilding. They weren't planning to be these big powerhouse teams like we saw just a few years prior, 2006. And obviously the team collapsed in 2007 and 2008, but you had a lot of household names on those teams. And so we were kind of in this this shift, um, you know, post-recession, or or in the midst of a recession, post-economic collapse in 2008, where the Wilpons who were involved in Ponzi schemes were, you know, crying poor and were not funneling money into the team anymore. So 2011, obviously, you had a, a subpar 2010 season. Uh, 2009, a team that was marred by injuries. And then the, the, the collapses of 2007 and 2008. So we're kind of in this era sandwiched between when the Mets ultimately did make the World Series again in 2015 and their their previous success of 2006. So um, after the 2010 season, uh, general manager Omar Minaya as well as manager Jerry Manuel were fired. Sandy Alderson was brought in um, to be the general manager. Obviously, he had spent many years with the A's, you know, kind of a money ball, quote-unquote, guy who could rebuild this team, kind of do it in a way where they weren't doling out these albatross contracts. Um, And Terry Collins was brought in as manager. Um, You know, he had some previous experience overseas, uh, as well as with the Houston Astros and the... um, Angels, so that happens at the end of the 2010 season. 2011, the first domino kind of falls where Carlos Beltran gets traded to the San Francisco Giants um, a few days before the trade deadline, Um, and the Mets get top pitching prospect Zach Wheeler back uh, in that deal. Um, And that was kind of the first, like, flag I feel like that the Mets were raising where it's like, all right, you know, where this is like the rebuild now, like we're we're going to be getting prospect capital. It's going to be a rough couple of years, but you know this is what needs to happen. We got to trade away some of these veteran guys. So Beltron gets traded. Jose Reyes, whose contract is set to expire at the end of the year, remains with the team. They don't trade him. He wins the batting title in 2011, and then he walks in free agency. Um, signs with the rival Marlins. Um, who have just rebranded, you know, their uniforms. They're the Miami Marlins now. Kind of goes over there where they're trying to build a super team over there. Um, Played with the Marlins for a bit, then went to Toronto. And, um, you know, I don't know if Reyes really – if that deal – I think the Marlins gave him a seven-year deal, and I don't think that, like, whatever teams he played for, the Blue Jays, the Marlins, like, it was never worth it. But even still, you know, I remember being – 15 or 16 or whatever, and it was a, a tough pill to swallow to see Reyes um, leave. You know, he'd been a Met since I was, like, eight years old, so kind of grew up with him. Um, and so, yeah, it was just like, yeah, you know, the Mets, like, like you always have, have that hope that they're going to be competitive, that they're going to, you know, this could be our year. And, you know, I, I 
even back then you still think that that's like the case, but you know, obviously this, there's clearly a rebuild underway. Um, and so, uh, it's just not like, it's a little different. I feel like in New York though, because like the Wilpons were very stubborn. And so like, I feel like there was like, they really still didn't want to tank even though they were rebuilding. So I feel like there's probably some, not pressure, but like there's probably some like, uh, expectation that the Mets would be semi-competitive. Um, and so, 2011, December 6th, the Mets made a trio of moves um, within the span of like an hour, maybe two hours. They traded outfielder Angel Pagan to the San Francisco Giants for outfielder Andres Torres and reliever Ramon Ramirez, who is a right-hander. And they they signed relief pitchers Frank Francisco, who is slated to be their next closer, and veteran John Roush. And you look back at this, and it's like not none of the none of this panned out for the Mets at all. Um, Pagan was a guy who was one year removed from having a four-plus wins above replacement season. Um, and even before that, in 88 games in 2009, where the rest of the team was 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 completely battered by injuries, Pagan had 2.8 wins above replacement. So, the you know, he's kind of in the midst of his prime uh and he has one down here, the Mets ship him off to San Francisco, and where he rebounds almost immediately, puts up 4.6 wins above replacement in the year that the Giants won their second title uh, in three years. And he was a big, big part of that team. Uh, the Mets in exchange got, like I said, Torres and Ramirez. Torres was a guy who um, Giants fans really loved. He was on the 2010 team um, that won, when the Giants won their first World Series. Uh, out of three, he had 6.3 wins above replacement, a 125 WRC plus, a 358 WOBA. He had a triple slash of 268, 343, 479, a career high 16 home runs, 63 RBIs, and 26 stolen bases. Um, had a little bit of a down year in 2011, had 2.1 wins above replacement. Um, so I guess this move was kind of, you know, from the Giants – you know they're they're getting Pagan, um, and the Mets are hoping that they can get similar production to what they would have gotten out of Pagan from Torres, and then kind of some icing on the cake with Ramon Ramirez. Um, and Ramon R- Ramirez was a guy who the Mets, I remember, were planning to use kind of in like a dual capacity because he had some success against lefties in his career. So he was a guy who they you know they they would kind of use as a situational lefty, even though he was a righty. Um, because he had some, you know, with San Francisco, he had a couple good years where he was good against lefties. He comes to New York, and he's he's just not <laughs> good. Like, lefties lit him up in 2012. Um, overall, he had a 424 ERA in 58 games. Um, he had 3.93 uh, FIP. Um, he was just pretty average, you know. Um, and then he was gone. He went back to the Giants in 2013, Funny enough, so did Andres Torres. They both went back there in 2013. Um, you know, Ramirez only pitched in six games for them, and then he pitched in one game for Baltimore in 2014, and then he was out of baseball. Torres, same thing. He went back. He played 103 games for the Giants in 2013. Um, had a pretty, like, league average season, and then he retired as well. Pagan ended up uh, being winning two World Series titles with the Giants in 2012 and 2014. Uh, he spent uh, five seasons with them overall. 
Obviously, his best season was 2012 when he had 4.6 wins above replacement. But he was decent otherwise. You know, he had 1.5 wins above replacement in, tw- in 71 games in 2013. He had 1.8 wins above replacement in 96 games in 2014. Uh, 2015 was bad. He he was negative wins above replacement. And then he finished his career in 2016 uh, with 1.1 wins above replacement in 129 games. Um, but for me, it was kind of like I really liked Pagan and... Uh, it really stunk that they traded him. I, I like the. I don't know if like the Mets didn't think he was a good clubhouse guy or whatever it was, but they were very quick to trade him after one bad, like not even bad, just like kind of a down year in 2011. Um, you know, but he was only 29 years old. I mean, it, it's not like they even traded him for prospect capital too. It was kind of like a lateral move. Like, and honestly, the Mets even really lost the move because like they weren't like. Uh, they got Torres and Ramirez, who both were bad, and then Pagan ended up having you know several successful seasons for the Giants. So um, that's a move that was a little bit concerned, like weird for me. It's like if you're rebuilding, at least maybe get some prospects back if you're going to do that type of deal. But I guess the Mets were hoping that that you know Ramirez and Torres would be more than enough to replace Pagan's um, per- performance. You know, Torres, I guess they were hoping would give. The Mets, what Pagan did, and then Ramirez would kind of just be that icing on the cake. Um, so that deal kind of stunk. And I kind of look back at that deal, you know, during Sandy Alderson's first tenure as the Mets GM. And, like, that is, like, easily, in my opinion, the worst deal trade that he made. Like, that and the Justin Turner non-tender were just both, like, like moves that, that, that really sucked. Um, and... You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Sandy Alderson made a lot of good moves in 2015 especially. Uh, a lot of the prospects that he gave up didn't really even ever pan out. Um, I kind of look at, like, Michael Fulmer as the best of the batch, and even he now is is just pitching out of relief for Detroit. Um, and so, and, and, you know, the Mets got Cespedes in that deal. So it was it was – those deals were important, and none of them really came back to bite him. But that Pagan deal and the, and the Justin Turner are both are both – moves that the Mets probably shouldn't have made. Um, but it happens. It's part of baseball. Um, the other two moves are, you know, like I mentioned, they signed John Roush and Frank Francisco as free agents. John Roush, who's actually one of the tallest players in baseball, if not maybe the tallest, he's six foot eleven. And I remember going to the Hall of Fame and they have like his uniform um, you know, like set up on like a like a mannequin or something like that. That's the exact same height of him as him. And they have that next to one of the shortest players of all time. And it's like this huge contrast. So that was a cool aspect of the Hall of Fame when I went a couple years ago. But Roush, overall, like, decent reliever. You know, he, he played uh, 11, 12 seasons in the majors. Um, had some good years with Washington in the mid-2000s. Uh, kind of highlighted by a 1.7 F4 season in 2007. Uh, he pitched in 88 games out of Washington's bullpen. Um, 361 ERA, 338 FIP, 427 XFIP. You know, and then he kind of bounced around a bit, played for the Twins and the Blue Jays. Um, and even with the Mets, he was fine. He was serviceable. You know, he was worth 0.3 wins above replacement, which is nothing to write home about. But he ate some innings for the Mets in 73 games, was fine. Um, he had a 359 ERA uh, in 57 innings. So... You know, overall okay, but the the thing that was like I think Roush will probably be most known for is getting into a altercation with Matt Harvey in the dugout. I'm sorry, not the dugout in the clubhouse um, 
like, I guess shortly after Harvey got called up, because he got called up in, I think, July. Um, Harvey was apparently taking a nap on one of the couches in the clubhouse and had his phone, like, kind of on his chest. And John Roush came over with, a, like, a bucket of ice water and dumped it on Harvey. And Harvey stood up for himself. He got he got into Roush's face and challenged him to a fight, essentially, and Roush backed down. Um, and so... Uh, it's funny that that's kind of how he's known for. And like, you know, Roush probably thought he was this big, bad veteran. He's been around the league or whatever. And, you know, Harvey's a guy who ended up, you know, pitching in 2013 in the All-Star game, you know, made it to the World Series in the Mets in 15. You know, it was the Dark Knight. Harvey Day was a big thing. And, and, and the career didn't pan out like people were hoping it would with Harvey. You know, and a lot of people will say, okay, you know, he was – a jerk off the field and that's what led to his downfall. But, you know, Harvey had two major arm surgeries. Um, you know, he had Tommy John surgery, which yes, a lot of guys come back from, but then after 2015, he had that thoracic outlet syndrome surgery and thoracic outlet syndrome is a death sentence for pick for pitchers. You know, not many guys come back from that and pitch successfully. And some guys don't even come back at all. You know, so Harvey's still active. You know, he pitched with the Baltimore Orioles in 2021 and, you know, had some okay games, but he's not who he was. He's not that dominant pitcher. He's a guy who might strike out a few guys throughout the game. He'll scatter a few runs. Maybe he'll give you five, six innings. He's a, His ceiling at this point is a number five, maybe number four starter on a bad team. Not a good team on a bad team. Um, and it's sad to see. It's sad to see with Harvey. It really is. You know, he was one of my favorite players, and he still goes down as one of my favorite players uh, as a Met. Um, and it just any Mets fan from that era will tell you that it was so exciting to see him take the mound every fifth day. The Mets just didn't have a homegrown pitching prospect come up like that and just dominate right off the bat like Harvey did in such a long time. Like, you know, you obviously had your Johan Santana's. You had your... You know, R.A. Dickey, who won the Cy Young that year. You had your Pedro Martinez. You had your Al Lighters and stuff. But who is the last homegrown guy before that that really came up and pitched as well as Harvey did? It wasn't the last player who did it was probably, I don't know, David Cohn. You know, and they also got him in a trade. Um, you know, probably Doc Gooden. Um, you know, and I don't want to compare Doc and, and Harvey you know, two guys who probably didn't hone in on all of their potential for one reason or the other. You know, Doc, unfortunately, you know, was involved in drugs. Harvey was a guy who was injured a lot. And, you know, what? I'll admit, you know, Harvey did have his off-the-field flaws, you know, like for sure. Um, but that's not the reason why he had thoracic outlet syndrome. You know, that's not the reason why his career is like, is how it turned out to be. The guy had a massive arm injury, and I think a lot of people aren't, super sensitive to that they just think that harvey was this selfish guy and this and that and you know sure maybe maybe he's selfish you know whatever i don't know the guy personally but that guy put everything on the field when he would go out there when he was healthy and for him to not be able to live up to that full potential again must haunt him at night and you know what i think it 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 haunts me a lot as a mets fan because I think that the, the the thought process was that he was going to be the ace for years to come you know and you think about if he if he never got hurt you know, maybe you have a guy who is your number two guy right behind DeGrom, you know, and then you have Harvey in his, you know, I don't want to say prime, but like 
Harvey, if he was like he was in 2013, 2015, pitching alongside Scherzer with DeGrom, I mean, that's, you know, it's a dream. But obviously things didn't pan out that way for Harvey. Um, anyway, I kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent. You know, I'm very passionate about Matt Harvey. He's one of my favorite players that ever ever suited up for the Mets, and I just think that he gets a bad rap sometimes. But I just think it's funny that Roush is more known for that, and Harvey like <laughs> probably is a more well-known player than John Roush, uh, which is funny. Um, like Roush thought he was this big bad veteran, and like Harvey is just like you know was not having any of it. Um, so that was that was the the you know that was the second move, and the third one is Frank Francisco, and he was the one that the Mets gave like not a huge deal to, but they gave him a two year contract um, to be kind of like their closer, um, and it just it's funny to me that they like they they had so much faith in this guy because like he wasn't even coming off a really good season, he was coming off a twenty eleven season where like. He had okay numbers. He had a 3.55 ERA. He had a 3.80 FIP. He had a 3.36 xFIP, um, and he never had an ERA in his career lower than 3.12. So it was just like, and obviously ERA is not the be all end all, but like none of these numbers jump off the page where it was like, okay, like this guy, we got to have this guy, like, and they, they you know, they. In a time where you know money is not like you know the, there's the Mets don't have bottomless pockets, it was kind of a, a confusing move, you know, just because he he was also like 32 when they got him, um, was never a guy that had like a lot of success, and I guess they just they 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 gave the money to him hoping that he could be their closer for a couple of years, kind of in this like you know mi- middle process of rebuilding, um, but he wasn't great. Um, he pitched in just uh, 56 games for the Mets in 2012 and 13, and 48 of them came in 2012. 2013, he pitched in just eight games. Um, he had 0.3 F war between the two seasons. I mean, really just like a season plus. Um, and that was that. Next week, we're going to do a full episode on Frank Francisco, um, just because I think he's a really interesting guy. Like, you know, I like I know like Ron Darling would take digs at him in the uh, in the booth sometimes. Like he had like that whole thing with like Henry Mejia, where he, if I remember, um, you know, don't quote me on this, just because it's something I'm kind of just remembering. Like like if I remember, you know, and I'll do more research on it next week. But he like told Mejia to like fake being or like to like milk being hurt or something like that. Um, obviously, I have to do a little bit more research into that. But like I kind of remember hearing that that was maybe a thing. Um, so those were those three moves and it just kind of brought me back to like that time period of like, damn, that was some bleak, some bleak times in Mets history. You know, in the 2011, the 2012 Mets were not good either. Um, you know, like these guys were kind of just like the display of that. Like, you know, these are just like some forgettable veterans that the Mets got. Um, obviously Harvey debuted in 2012. Ike Davis hit 30 home runs. R.A. Dickey won the Cy Young. So there were some positives. Um, you know, and then 2013, 2014, you know, more guys started to come up. You kind of started to see, you know, that, okay, maybe there's some potential here. Um, you know, and then just adding guys on top of that to try to be competitive. But, yeah, it was it was a rough time. And I just remember, like, so being so frustrated those years as a Mets fan because it's like you knew they weren't going to spend – and you kind of just had to wait 
for like the rebuild to kind of like you had to like trying to trust the process like that like old cliche like you just had to as a fan trust the process and it just wasn't fun though because I remember like you know the Yankees obviously you know being in being in New York you know I live close to the Bronx so a lot of people around here are Yankee fans and um you know the Yankees have won in 09 so I didn't hear the end of that from one of my best friends who's a Yankee fan um, but just to see them spend and get the guys that they always did uh, while the Mets had to, like, kind of cry poor was, like, really crappy. And, I mean, that lasted, like, for a long time with the Wilpons. They just sold the team, um, you know, before the, you know, uh, this is only Steve Cohen's uh, second year as as owners. Sorry, I couldn't get that out for whatever reason, but... Um, I feel like a lot of fans still have that thought process that like, you know, maybe not so much anymore, you know, that they just had a big like first half of their offseason leading up to the lockout where they signed Scherzer and they signed Starling Marte. But even before that, I feel a lot of Mets fans were still kind of like in that Wilpon mindset where um, the Mets are cheaping out and they're not going to spend and Steve Cohen kind of put put the kibosh on that. So... Hopefully it is a new era in Queens. You know, obviously, no winning is never guaranteed. It's such a crapshoot to get to the World Series and win it. But you know, it's just it is a stark difference from looking back on this to now because that was when the Mets were in the middle of a rebuild. I don't know if the Mets will ever rebuild, at least in the short term. Like as long as Steve Cohen is is running this team and infusing money into this team, I think the the the, the closest the Mets will get to a rebuild is a retool. Um, I don't think that they're ever going to fully rebuild, especially with all the money Cohen has. So it's kind of just like an interesting thing to look back on um, 10 years ago and see where, you know, I remember exactly, you know, where I was when, when those moves were made. And um, it was just a rough time to be Mets fan. So hopefully things are starting to look up in Queens a little bit. Um, but even still, never got over that Angel Pagan trade. I liked him a lot. I met him before a game one time, and he was really kind and signed my baseball. And it was just a really kind dude. So, um, you know, I was kind of bummed when they traded him. And he ended up having some good years with San Francisco, too. And all those moves the Mets made that day kind of just flopped. Uh, but next week we'll be back uh, normally scheduled Monday. We'll be talking about the state of the Mets. We'll be talking about some uh, maybe some free agent uh, free agents that are still available. Maybe we'll be t- looking at the roster formation of the Mets. Um, but we'll have some like more current, up-to-date stuff on the Mets for Monday's episode. And then next week, we'll be talking more about Frank Francisco, kind of like the second part of this uh, this episode. So we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, as always, I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know where to find our podcast, but we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Mets Legends and on Instagram at Mets period legends. Um, Let's go Mets and we'll see you guys next time.